Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 26. This week, we talked to Rick Barraza to learn everything we didn't know about design, deploy to Azure with the click of a button, how to mirror your screen on your TV, and how to write unmaintainable code. Hey, Carl, I've been coding my butt off. How's it going? I've been... <laughs> Coding my butt off too. <laughs> well, that's good though. Sometimes it's good to, to get into the code. I was coding uh, all last week, so probably twelve hours a day. So that was fun. Actually, it was it was tough to stop at the end of the day, getting that far into it. So, how did your uh, presentation go? It went pretty good. Uh, I met a lot of really cool people. A lot of people asked some really good questions about uh, about Cortana and the the topics I presented. So I thought it went great. I met a a lot of cool people, and I'm following a lot of them on Twitter now, too. So with us today, we have Rick Barraza. So he is a design strategy lead with Microsoft. Welcome, Rick. How's it going? I'm doing great. I've also been coding my butt off, so thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's fun, though. I, it's, it's been a while since I've actually like sat in front of a computer, and I, I, I ignored my email for a week. I you know, It shows for sure. And I cleared my calendar and just wrote a ton of code. And now I have... I have like five different, you know, things that I want to work on, you know, cause you sort of get into it and, and I just want to, want to keep going. So one thing I wanted to ask you, so your design strategy lead, what does that mean? Well, right now, a lot of my focus in evangelism is kind of where the world of design does kind of start uh, butting up sometimes violently and aggressively <laughs> uh, with the world of development. And okay. uh, I, traditionally, I, I do consider myself a developer as much as I consider myself a designer. So I've traditionally had this kind of uh, um, kind of hard to find spot that sits right in both worlds. And so a lot of times I'm, a, I'm basically a translation function or a forcing function uh, to translate from one world to the other. Perfect. That's why I wanted to talk to you because I, I talked to you last week and, and you were, you were talking about a lot of things that, that I had never heard before in the design world, but I could tell that you were also a developer. So, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I thought it would be great for our listeners to hear somebody who can do that translation, as you mentioned. So, well, uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So this should be a good discussion. Uh, let's get through the news here first. Um, so the first thing here, what is this Carl? We have a new website. Yeah. So if anybody had been to our website previously, it looked like we picked some generic blog and forgot to pick a theme. <laughs> no, no way. Yeah. I, that's what I have told everybody. <laughs> um, yeah. A, a close friend of the show, he's been on twice, uh, Brandon Martinez. Uh, he has a company, Martinez Media. Uh, he helped us out. He did a lot of design and theme work um, for our site, added us a, a few new features as well. So if you go there, you'll see that uh, the design of it matches kind of our, the brand of our logo and there's, it, it's fun and uh, it's not boring. You, mm -hmm. It's a site you want to interact with. So yeah, it costs us a couple million dollars, but our listeners are worth it. Yes. <laughs> the third mortgage was, it, it wasn't hard to pull off at all. Yeah. My wife's used to it by now. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, definitely go check that out. So go to MS dev show and check out the new theme. It kind of matches the uh, kind of the retro, uh, pixelized gaming theme that we have going on. I like it. I like that you can, it's a little bit more, it, it's more accessible to see the, uh, the previous episode. That was a big problem before you could only see kind of the current episode. And most people had a hard time going back to the archives in the previous episodes. Yep. Plus it kind of calls out our guests a little bit more. We, sh we show their Twitter pictures on there and it just, it's a lot more visual. Yep. So Brandon, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I, oh, I, I love I love seeing a huge picture of Jeremy Foster just staring back at me at the website. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we roll. There you go. <laughs> uh, 
So let's see here. So Roku screen mirroring. So I, I actually got this and I tried it out. Have you tried this, Carl? My phones do not support Miracast. <laughs> oh, man. So it's just teasing you with it. Yes, it is. I, I In fact, I, I rushed out as soon as I saw the news for this. Yeah. Saw that I had the beta already. Yeah. I got it a few days ahead of when they said it was going to be initially uh, released and none of my phones support Miracast. Ouch. What about uh, what about your Surface devices? Uh, you know what? I did not think of it, but I do have some Dell venues. Okay. I probably should have tried that yeah they i think they support Miracast as long as you have the latest firmware on them which came out honestly a long time ago so they're probably good to go so that is uh that's pretty cool so i tried it uh with my phone and uh it it just it just worked um it was turned on by default it i didn't get the beta very early um i ended up leaving for a week and i came back and and it it happened to be there when i when i first heard about i tried to download it wouldn't let me I think they were just sort of letting people update slowly and it's still in beta, uh, but it worked really good with the phone. I, I was flipping through photos. There's a pretty small lag, but it's it's awesome for that. Just that simple scenario of, you know, you take a whole bunch of photos and you come home and you just want to flip through those photos on a big screen and, and show them to somebody. So it's a lot better than having like the old, pro, you know, slide projector from when we were little. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I tried it with my tablet, but I think I broke it because um, I ended up hitting project and then uh, I can't remember what happened. I, I pushed something else and you know me, Carl, <laughs> I can break anything. Right. And yes, then, you can. uh, and then I thought I was done with it, but here, I think it was still trying to initiate that connection and the Roku had already sort of responded. So a minute later, it just stopped whatever was playing as my, my son was playing YouTube or something like that. And it just sort of flipped out. Um, so definitely beta. Um, I suspect had I just been a little bit more patient, it would have, uh, it would have worked fine. But uh, still, just really, really slick for for throwing it up there. And I, did we talk about that dongle on the last episode, the Miracast dongle? No. Oh, well, we should have talked about that. There's a <laughs> there's a Miracast dongle where you can it's a it's 60 bucks and it's perfect for hotel rooms where you can just plug this thing in the HDMI port and the USB port for power. And uh, and you can project directly to it. It's a it's peer to peer. So you don't have to be on the same network. So it's really easy to just sort of walk up to a TV hook this thing up and then throw the the picture up from your phone or your, or your device. It's really cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, another thing I'd like to add is, so this mirroring function works on Android and windows phone devices only. So mm-hmm. there is no iOS support, which is kind of interesting to see. Well, with Apple, you're sort of, you, you, you sort of are an Apple person or you're not like they don't, they don't give you any middle ground, unfortunately. So if you're using yeah. Apple, you got to be in their ecosystem and use um, airplay which, you know, in their defense works amazing, but it's because, you know, they completely control that ecosystem. So if you have all Apple stuff, you know, I used to have an iPhone and I had uh, an Apple TV. It worked beautifully for that. But, um, you know, then it doesn't work with anybody else's devices. And so I'm hoping this Miracast, I, I think it's going to take off once people start using it. People don't understand why the, the dongle costs a little bit more, but it, it, it's because it works a little bit different. Um, but once this is built into, you know, like the Xbox and, you know, all these other devices, eventually like Blu-ray players and all these consumer devices will have it. And I think it'll start to take off at that point. Yeah. One last word is if, if you're interested in doing this and you just can't figure it out, we do have, uh, links in our show notes on how to check for the update and enable mirroring on the Roku and how to, uh, initiate this from both the phone and on your windows eight device. Mm-hmm. Cool. Excellent. Uh, so up next, reverse engineering Yoda stories. I haven't even looked at this one. 
So Yoda Stories is an older uh, computer video game. Mm-hmm. And what this guy went, went through in the blog post is he said he was able to fully uh, reverse engineer this, at least on a way so he could grab the assets out. He could edit images in the, in the game, change a little bit of the level logic and stuff like that. And he went through exactly how he went through to do this. Um, I know when I was growing up in high school and stuff, I was always looking in, in hex editors and trying to figure out, you know, (laughs) how I could do something very similar to this. And, and it had this been, you know, 20 years ago, this would, I would have been all over this article and doing this. Um, what's also cool is he showed, you know, you know, he combined looking at the, the hex outputs, but with, uh, using a little bit of his C sharp knowledge to, well, let's try to extract this out of the file. And he shows how he went about, you know, doing these binary reads and saving out the images individually. And I mean, there's a lot of really cool tactics here that he used through modern code. I see that's pretty cool. Yep. So he's combining a little bit of his code knowledge with a little bit of just playing around with the hex dumps of, you know, the binaries of the game itself. I totally did the same thing um, as far as the the hex editor. So so I I have all these memories flying back now. What I what you would do is you would you would have a certain amount of health in the game and you would uh, you know, you'd save the game. Then you'd open up the save game file in a hex editor. You'd find, you know, all those locations and sort of save them out. Then you go back into the game and then you'd change your amount of health and then you'd exit the game again and look at the save file and figure out where it changed. And then I remember the. The big breakthrough was in, uh, I got a memory resident hex editor. So you could actually sit there and you could change the in memory values. So you're in a game and you could actually figure out which, you know, what the address was of your current health or your max health or whatever, or, you know, whatever the, whatever value you wanted to modify, whatever attributes. And then you could go in there and modify those, man, those were, those were fun times. (laughs) Now everything's all locked down. This is a, this is a pretty neat article though. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, JavaScript performance in Windows 10 technical preview. Tell me about this. So uh, between the last episode and now, uh, the Windows 10 technical preview came out. And one of the things that changed is the uh, JavaScript engine or or pipeline got a huge overhaul. Mm -hmm. And this article goes into some pretty intense detail on what's changed on it. Not just it's faster but it shows why it's faster and compares it to some of the previous like JIT JIT optimizers. Okay. So Um, the the key takeaway is JavaScript is faster now. Way faster. And they kind of lift the, lift the the curtain a little bit to show you what's underneath the hood. I mean, it's not magic. You know, here's, here's what's going on. Okay. Do we know uh, what is that JavaScript benchmark? That's pretty common. I can't remember the name of it. It's totally failing me, but I, I know that whenever you would run that benchmark, even on like IE 11, it would beat uh, Chrome in, in many areas. So I'm kind of curious now what the, what some of the new benchmarks are. You know the one I'm talking about? I can't place it off the top of my head. I'm searching to see if it comes up. Otherwise I'm just going to move on <laughs> benchmark sun spider. That's the one I'm thinking of. That's it. Yep. So it would be interesting to run a sun spider benchmark and see if there's a significant increase there. Although that's, you know, any kind of test like that, you can always sort of optimize for the test. So you got to be a little careful there. Cool. So faster JavaScript, I'll take it. Um, yeah, we didn't really talk about Windows 10 at all because that did come out since we recorded the last episode. I think it came out before the last episode was published, but um, or around that same time. Um, I don't know if there's anything notable that we wanted to talk about in there. 
Um, I'm running it. You said you're running it on kind of a second device. On a second device and in uh, VMs, I've been playing with it. Okay. See, I have no fear. I'm just running it on my main production machine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's it's actually been really good for me. I mean, there's there are I've been running my Surface Pro three, and there are some some small glitches, but it's, you know, nothing to keep me from, uh, being productive. You know, everything seems to run in a window, uh, pretty well. I've seen some, some graphical glitches with that. Um, but you know, it's, it's all really minor stuff. I have, I've actually have no problem. I mean, I'm going to be traveling again. I, I used uh, windows 10 all last week, um, on my, you know, service pro three. And that was my only machine. I'm traveling again this week and I trust it enough to be my only machine. So I'll just sort of leave it at that. Uh, deploy to Azure button. I looked at this one real quick. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So how does this work? Um, I read this last week, so I've actually forgot <laughs> a little bit about how it works. Oh, but, no problem, but, Carl. I'm always, but, but, always picking yeah. up the slack here. No, go ahead. It, it happens. <laughs> but, uh, what happened is, uh, this gentleman works on the Azure team itself and yep. he was asked if they, Azure team had anything like the Heroku button, mm-hmm. which kind of. If you have some Heroku code, you can just click the button and whatever that code is will get deployed in Heroku. Yeah. And he's like, you know, we don't do it, but I'm going to do this on my spare time. So he created a button where you can have, uh, you know, a, you know, a GitHub repo and it'll have a deploy to Azure button. Just as it says, you click it and it goes through the necessary steps. If it detects that things aren't set up properly to just prompt you for the bare minimum of what you need to get that code running in an Azure Cool. So does it clone it or does it deploy it directly? I can't tell here. Well, in any case, I mean, this is pretty cool because, yeah, you click the button. Um, it looks like you put in a site name. I mean, it already knows who you are in Azure. So a couple of clicks and boom, you're you're up and running in Azure. It just shows how easy it is because, you know, our website, we've talked about this before, gets deployed through Git. Um, if we put this button on here, actually, anybody could deploy our website just by pushing that button. That's pretty cool. Very neat. Uh, Project Spark. So my my kids played this when it was in uh, beta, and I noticed that it was released. So uh, what is this choose your own adventure feature? So as part of the announcement for it being released, um, mm-hmm. the the marketing for this was you know on, on this uh, site, um, the announcement is kind of given via a choose your own adventure story format. Oh, that's cool. So you click getting started and it gives you, you know, a story. It's very visual, some really cool animations and, you know, it's very cartoonish and it asks, you know, it starts prompting you, are you an adventure or or not an adventure? And it brings you through a story and your choices, you know, depend upon whether you you're successful or you reach the end or or not. That's cool. Just kind of clicking through it. Yeah, it just walks you through a story. It kind of gives you the, the feel of the game, too. It's great where uh, you get to questions and like, do you want to go to dinner with the team and learn more? And you're like, now I'll go back to my hotel. Yeah. And like a big bear eats you. <laughs> it's like, Whoops. maybe you want to go back, have dinner with that team. I'm oh sorry. yeah. I see this one here. Politely yeah. decline. Okay. I'm not going to pick that option. I'm no, going to go. Hilarious. I'm going to go to dinner. Everybody remember that. And, and, and what, what's okay. also cool is that it gives you lives. So if you make the bad choice, you can kind of jump to the other choice a little bit more easily too. Yeah, and this site's using that parallax effect where you you sort of scroll down and things change, and they did a really nice job designing this. Well, actually, Rick, did they do a good job designing this? <laughs> uh, yeah, the expert. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. this this is great. I, I got to play this a little bit more. This is hilarious. <laughs> cool. Anything else you want to say about that, Carl? 
No, it's it, just that Project Spark, for those of you who don't know, it's a, it, it's a game that where you can design a game within it. Yeah. And, and it, it's very, you know, uh, easy to manipulate the world. They have a lot of different uh, objects, characters, you know, ways to edit the storyline, but also make it customizable for what how you want your game to be. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a game like Skylanders, like you can build, well, other than the hardware, you can build that in Project Spark from what I've seen. I mean, you create characters, you you like, you program their brain, you set up the levels and they can be 2D, 3D. I mean, it's just, it, it's just incredible the stuff that you can create. And I think you can do it like Windows 8. I don't know if you can do it on phone, but I think you can do it on Xbox. It It's, I mean, the whole thing is sort of mind blowing. Yeah, the, the one thing that I was looking at uh, on mine early on, I, and I have to come back and, and revisit it, but mm-hmm. uh, early on, I think the economy that you could set up uh, was still kind of limited, which makes sense when you're starting something up, right, to ensure quality and everything. But since I, I interact so many with, uh, with creatives and students, uh, I don't know where they are now, uh, but I'd love to come back and check and see what their uh, position is toward user-generated content being able to be seeded out to kind of get these cottage industries growing. I'm a very big proponent of that myself, so I, I hope uh, I hope that's been expanding out a little bit. I got to check it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Same here because my uh, my kids were pretty excited about it, and uh, now that it's released, I sh- I'm going to have to check it out again. Absolutely. Um, this was an article that I found: how to write unmaintainable code. Um, finally something i know a lot about (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i i i could have uh i could have written this just based off my code uh this is pretty cool actually what's crazy is how huge this page is like i think this guy whoever's been whoever's been writing this guy or girl has been collecting this for way too long (laughs) i mean there's like different different sections like different aspects like documentation uh the naming section the naming yeah. section alone is quite a few pages long. Yeah. You new uses for names for baby, single letter variable names, creative misspelling, uh, acronyms, cap, you know, incorrect capitalization. Uh, nice. Um, in, in fact, there's so many. There's there's actually some of these that I've never actually run across, but still understand how evil they would be. Yeah. Recycle it, your variables. Yep. Well, one of them is wrap every class in an instance that's just empty that would be like hey i wrote this it's mm-hmm. the i i i wrote this class or interface and everything that you ever write inherits from it so you could return something that's i wrote this and you would have no idea what it would be yeah. you, you don't know what to expect uh there's just so many evil things in here I, 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 if somebody were to actively write a program that used all of these <laughs> it, it would you would just cringe looking at it. Well, and the thing is like when you first look at it, like some of these things, like under the camouflage section, like you wouldn't even know how evil it is. I mean, they have, they just change the the spacing throughout. Right. So then some of this, uh, some of this change codes or blends in with the other code, you know, they just do a good job of you, you, whenever you scan the code, it looks like one thing, but here the code is actually something else. And then there's even program design. Um, Man, you uh, static arrays, three-dimensional arrays. Yeah, three-dimensional arrays. <laughs> Name things like int, but the I would have the little accent over it, so it's hard to tell in an editor. <laughs> nice. Nice. And then IntelliSense would be completely broken, too. This would make a great drinking game, I think. I kind of open up any <laughs> any code I wrote in the past three years. and uh, well, what, what is interesting on here, though, is 
because I, because most of the code that we write on the on the experimentalist side, right? Uh, we're we're interacting with code in much more of a sketchy kind of clay sort of way. So when you look at early code from like the Flash days when people were using Flash, right, or Silverlight, or when you're in these innovation labs, you're not you're not planning and architecting and structural engineering something, right? You're really trying to throw everything out and see what sticks. So mm -hmm. I'm constantly accused of magic numbers, right? But but yeah. most of the coolest things when you're making when you're making very fast vision types or prototypes, you build in a very sloppy sort of way. So it, it's kind of funny that this is this is unmaintainable code if it's production engineering, but it's almost just like common practice if you're on the different side of the coding fence. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge challenge that you and I have because we we start a lot of projects or we help with projects, but we, you know, there's there's something to be said for working on the same project for like three years, you know, and having exactly. that production code. And it's totally different, uh, you know, class of of problem. Exactly. I have 48 hours to code something and it only needs to work for 10 minutes while it's being shown to the stakeholders. Right. right, right. And it can max out the CPU, you know, and then it can blow up the machine. But so yeah. that type of mindset, uh, you you develop certain practices because you have to be very, very, you're basically making things up right on the spot sometimes. Well, so. and that's like super short term technical debt because I, I fall yeah. into that trap where it's like, okay, I'm just going to work on this today. And then after a while, I've the technical debt starts killing me even after an hour and I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, okay. Maybe I need to split up this code a little bit and, and make it a little bit easier to, you know, get to the right places in this code. Um, so that's just like, that's like, it's a whole new class of technical debt. That's like maxing out your credit cards the second you get them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last thing here, uh, this just was announced today was angular JS 1.3. Um, and it looks like, you know, we'll have a link in the show notes. There's a couple new features in here. There's things like one-time bindings. Um, what else do we got in here? Some, some new efficiencies, um, like memory reduction in memory, co uh, consumption, things like that. Um, increase in, you know, performance in a lot of different areas. So I think, I, I don't think there's a ton of breaking changes in this one. Um, so I think it's pretty safe to, to upgrade to this. Obviously you need to do some testing. But, um, you know, it's a small incremental update to AngularJS that, um, you know, if you're not about to release, you probably want to check it out. I just wanted to point that out. And now officially has packages published to NPM, which is nice. So you can do okay. an NPM install Angular. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, um, yep, this was, this happened, this was a few hours ago. So pretty much everything should be in order now. It should be on all the CDNs and all that good stuff. And um, I bet you there's a lot of apps that are already in production out there on the web that are using it. <laughs> Wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Okay. So let's get to Rick now. Let's, let's talk design. Um, so Rick, do you want to, you want to give us a little bit of, you know, you, you told us what your, your title is. Do you want to give us a little bit of uh, background on yourself? Uh, sure. So, um, I, I'd probably say early on. So way, 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 way back. I started as a Microsoft, um, back in the late nineties, I think the what was it, a Microsoft solution provider or a certified okay. something or another. Uh, so Visual Basic and SQL Server was actually where I kind of started. Uh, and then this thing called Flash came out, and that kind of took over the world for several years. And uh, so I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers making uh, software uh, and kind of that first generation of um, rich internet applications. So I've always kind of started and been at that position, generally translating design values into business. So um, a lot of my friends or peers 
or people with similar skill sets tended to go straight to the agency world and kind of more consumer stuff. I always made a pretty good business kind of being able to bring in business requirements um, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, with design guidance uh, and stuff like that. And Flash is one of those tools that kind of really allowed this combination. It said be smart and creative at the same time. So um, a lot of this focus, 10 years later now I'm here at Microsoft and I've been creative director at media companies. I've taught interactive media and programming. Um, and so now here at Microsoft, I once again find myself in this position where I kind of am a translation layer, uh, explaining design concepts and high-level strategy principles to the development world, uh, and conversely, development practices and coding to creatives, which is where, where a lot of my heart and passion is, is basically the way creatives leverage computation uh, is just fundamentally different from mm-hmm. how production engineers think of code, and kind of raising raising awareness of that here at Microsoft, right? That, for example, C++, there is this massive dark matter out there of agencies that are using cross-platform C++ libraries to do some of the most coolest uh, computationally-based design work on TVs and movies and advertising, and we never think of them as C++ programmers, right? Mm -hmm. None of our C++ tutorials or anything is targeted toward this entire world of creatives that leverage computation. So last it's I've only been at Microsoft a couple years. Uh, I think we've already made a big dent. Last year we were able to talk to Herb Sutter uh, before his going native keynote. And that kind of opened up his eyes and he was able to tie it into the keynote for going native and to spend quite a bit of time right on, on all this stuff. So it's kind of raising awareness internally at Microsoft. Uh, evangelizing creative coding to Microsoft as much as it is evangelizing the Microsoft stack to creative coders. I've never really thought about it much, but that, you know, it's such a good point. All those, all the people that you're talking about that are, that are working with this every day and, and you just don't, you know, most of us developers just don't think about them that often, but that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I think it comes down, like when we say developer, we kind of implicitly mean production engineer. Right, a production software engineer developer. Right, and we, and we kind of even see it into kind of the motions that have changed in evangelism. Right, where we're saying, well, it's about developer evangelism, but we're spending an awful lot of time for developers that work with partners. Right, mm-hmm. for people's day job. And I, as a creative, uh, creatively motivated person, I'm much more passionate with what people do when they're hacking. Right, when they go home and it's the evenings, and you have your Galileo or you have your Arduino. Right? What things are you creatively exploring outside of the context of work? Because to me, that's one of the things that really says what platforms get adopted. Right? And so mm-hmm. that kind of aspect that developers uh, are creative. It, it, is, it, it is a creative activity when you're writing software. So, so first, even getting to terms with what the words are. Right? When, when a developer in a production environment says design, they basically mean like a graphic design. And they kind of mean what's the look of it that you just slap on at the end, right? We, mm-hmm. we kind of made this big you yep. know, p- p- bloated pig of a software thing. Here it is. Make it look oh, yeah, good. Here it is. Exactly. Uh, slap some lipstick on it. Um, that is a certain discipline. That's like a sub-discipline of design. If you're just doing graphic design or just doing the aesthetics. Um, but that's not the design that I talk about at the professional level, right? Or, or when we're speaking globally at these things. That type of design is defined as human-centered problem solving. Okay. And when you just think about it like that, uh, engineering is problem solving and design is human-centered problem solving. So many times there's an overlap. Uh, the design as a process is basically making sure you're solving something for humans. 
uh, with the amount of delight that that solution affords. If I'm if I'm creating a transactional business application, the design needs for that would look completely different than if I'm building like a a immersive. Uh, expressive like drawing app for a Windows tablet, right? Using pen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which looks completely different than if I'm making a game. So what design is, it's very, uh, it's very diverse and nuanced. And I kind of speak about the entire discipline broadly. Uh, but so many times the conflict that comes up is people are just using the wrong words the wrong way or developers use a word a certain way and designers think of it as a different way. And a lot of it's just this translation per, uh, dysfunction that's happening. So what do you think are the main components of app design? And we need like we need we need like a glossary of terms now because I'm trying I'm trying to keep everything straight. <laughs> yeah, sorry. And I think I gave you like four different answers to that one question. I'll, I'll no, try. no, that's, that's fine. This is this so. is this is why we're having you on. This is. This is a whole new world that that developer. When I say developers, I mean production yeah. engineers should get exposed to. Let me step back because you asked mm-hmm. design specifically. So, yeah. on design specifically, uh, or a, a design product. So, so first, let me let me do a quick quick summary. And anybody who who follows me or has heard my talks, I mean, they've heard this a lot. So, I I can do this justice. I think very quickly. Okay. Uh, first off, the word design in English is both a noun and a verb. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're not a designer, you think of it as a noun, as that finished product. Right. I like the design of that app. If you are a designer, you don't think of it as a noun. You think of it as a verb. It's something you do. I design great apps. Right. And as design, you mean you're you're solving it for people. You're making sure that what you're building is the right thing for people to use it. So if you just think of design as a noun, it, it's it's the finished product. Right. Then design is something you can wait till the very end, right? Get the get the coders in there, get the frameworks, solve it from the inside out, and just slap on the noun at the end before you shift it, you know, before you ship it. Mm-hmm. But but if you understand the profession of design, that it's a verb, that it's an action you do, and it's defined as human-centered problem solving, then of course you're going to bring design into the very, very, very beginning because that's when your engineers and that's where your architects and that's where your strategists are figuring out what is the problem we're trying to solve. And design at the beginning makes sure that you're that you are actually solving the right problem. Because as engineers, we'll be able to solve it well. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of like that Big Bang Theory, right? I mean, he was totally wrong, but he was very, very smart, right, in, in being <laughs> wrong. So um, so first in that context, uh, design as a, as a process of human-centered problem solving uh, versus just the artifacts. So as we look at a designed thing, designed app in this case, uh, Donald Borman argues there's three different types of design that makes a great app. And these would be visceral design, mm-hmm. behavioral design, and reflective design. Now, that's fancy words because as designers, we like to get paid well you know, by throwing around fancy terms. So to actually make it really easy, visceral design is kind of that, that gut check, right? You see, you see an app, um, and it's just gorgeous. You know, It's liquid. That 10-second wow that you get, the, that ooh and ah, right? Like, oh, that's so cool, right? Mm-hmm. Shut up, take my money, right? I mean, yep. that type of visceral <laughs> reaction we get, that's, that's visceral design. That tends to be what what people first see. It's like, what's it look like? You know, is it sexy? These types of things. Um, if your app doesn't have that, um, then then that's a challenge, right? But the other type of design in the middle, that's behavioral design. And these are things that are definitely things that are only possible with developers uh, being tightly integrated. Behavioral design are things like usability. Is the app stable? Is the app crashing? Is the app fast, right? Is it getting me to where I want to go? Um, that's something that you need engineers, you need software, you need design 
uh, you know, interface designers, interface developers. You need all these people working together. Um, behavioral design is something that's basically what, how does this app behave? The last one, reflective design, I think that's, that's a little too broad for this conversation, but that tends to be, is the app uh, reflecting back onto me the lifestyles that I want? Now, to not get too esoteric here, we can talk <laughs> about what Microsoft's doing with, say, um, its modern design language, this, this move toward flat, right? Everything's kind of flat, no more mm-hmm. gradients. Th- this is a style uh, that some people um, that some people embrace, and now most of the world has embraced it, but other people didn't, right? So something mm-hmm. like that as a visual style, that reflects a certain lifestyle that people might want. It, it is very sci-fi, you know, minimalist and modern and clean and modernism. So for some brands, that's not the best choice, right? I mean, if Ed Hardy's making an app, you're not going to want it to be flat and squares because the brand of that app, uh, if, it's, if it's a brand-sensitive app, it, which generally happens on the consumer space, flat design may or may not work very well with it. If mm-hmm. you're, uh, if the brand of that app is is very expressive, very not minimal, very not flat, right? So these are things you got to take into account. And and I think a lot of difficulties happened the past year when, or the past couple of years, where Microsoft came up with a very strong position on what design is for our first-party apps. But then it started getting very prescriptive, and we wanted to say every app needs to look like this. And mm-hmm. we kind of we kind of commod- tried to commoditize design to say, here's your checklist, right? Are you using Sego 42 point? Is it 100 pixels <laughs> from the top, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, and it's been great to see, and, and it's what I've been spending a lot of my energy on the past couple of years, helping shift that company culture around respecting design properly. And it's not something you, commod- you can commoditize, right? Um, our guidance is very, very good for certain types of apps, and we need to continue to explore the other types of apps, the highly immersive apps, brand-sensitive apps, games, right? High data density. These are all design considerations where it's designers and engineers got to work together to make sure they're building the best thing possible. Yeah, it's great that we're in a, a time now where where this is, this is starting to matter. Right. So I I just get this feeling that, um, you know, even if we go like a decade ago, we were still in this time where it was, it was difficult enough to build software that what, whatever it took for the engineers to get it done, that that's what you shipped. And it was at the expense of the user. Um, you know, it's, it's like, don't, you don't care what it looks like. We need a new feature. We'll add another button. And now, now it's really shifting. Now it's really about the user and the developers, it's like, hey, you, you you have to you have to worry about all these different aspects. Otherwise, you know, this is not a, this is not going to be a successful product. And that I think that's a good shift. Yeah, well, it, it's funny because Edward Tufte says there's only two industries that speak of their audience as users, and that's software and drug narcotics. And <laughs> so when I like you that. Think, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I I try not to use the word user. I mean it's it's hard to get away from it because it's mm-hmm. so tightly ingrained in how we think of software. But the problem with, with thinking of people, Should we call them addicts? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, because both software and narcotics, you want to strip the humanity away from people because that's yeah. messy, right? You want to collapse them down to a very predictable transactional kind of wave function, right? Yep. I mean, they just need this fix and we're making the software and it's a, it's a generic user who wants to get something done. 
But that's only true for certain types of software, for certain utilities type of software, right? If I'm going to an ATM, I don't need to have dancing hamsters and be entertained and be appealed to, right? I don't want to see gamification as I'm trying to just figure out what my balance is, right? I mean, I just want something done, a utility. But the other half of my relationship with technology uh, isn't for utilities experiences. It is for immersive experiences when I'm playing, uh, you know, when I'm when I'm playing Destiny, right? Or when I'm being expressive, when I'm using Photoshop, uh, when my kids are 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 playing their games or learning the alphabets, right? These are these are what we want to get lost in technology to do. Mm-hmm. So technology has the split from the beginning. Um, I I do give a talk on the domain space, this kind of cube of software. Uh, that'll be really hard to explain if it's just an audio <laughs> webcast. So let's make we can make it really simple <laughs> to just a single access of the light. And on one far end, you would have utility software, and on the other end, you would have immersive software. And and to make it easy, um, th- this works for anything. So think of McDonald's being on one side and Starbucks being on the other side. But McDonald's and Starbucks both have amazing, amazing design, and they've spent so much money on design, but their functions are completely different. McDonald's does think of their people, because it's fast food, think of them as users, and it's transactional, right? Their color scheme, right? Red and yellow. Red gets you excited. Yellow tends to stimulate uh, uh, hung- hunger. So it's it's clear. It's like, you know, eat and get out, right? I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's red and yellow. And you see a lot of fast food companies use red and yellow, right? It's designed that way. All the layout, you you don't even have to be literate, right? To use the cash register or to order. Like everything's pointable. You like point and grunt, you know, two times and you want two Big Macs, right? And and the cash register. So it's, McDonald's is like this super well-designed pinnacle of utility and usability. But now you go to Starbucks and they're almost the exact opposite on every single design decision. Um, They're one of the very few global companies that use green as their brand color. Now, green... Uh, for all of the implications of of wealth, right, and sustainability, they're all about green. Their menu is is very low discoverability, right? So just from a usability aspect, Starbucks should be failing, right? right. Because their, their their menus, you know, their menus very low discoverability, but that's okay because nobody orders off of the menu anyways, right? Yeah. So McDonald uh, McDonald's is about the transaction, and all of their design decisions support that. And Starbucks is all about um, the reflective design and the experience that you want to do and the brand. And yet, of course, they still need that engineering logic to make it as fast as possible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they do want to churn you out, but it's all about that experience that you're enjoying. So in the same way with apps, you have to be honest about what your app is trying to do because um, it's really easy to kind of cheapen design and turn it into like a visceral trick, right? I I, I designed a bad app that functions poorly. Let me just add some drop shadows and gloss, right? And push it out the door. Yep. And that's and that's kind of what Metro was fighting against. Metro was a forcing function to say, no, everybody needs to get better. Engineers need to get better. The architects need to get better. We really got to think about what problem are we solving here, right? If we get rid of all the crutches, does our app still stand or fall, right? So because of that, I've always been a very, very big fan of the design principles to begin with. But we see a lot of confusion because we keep trying to apply rules that are good when you're focusing on the utility app and try and say experience apps need to follow the same rules. And that's where we've had so much conflict over the past couple of years. And it's, it's part of that healing process now as we go about and talk with agencies that are building these apps, right? Digital agencies that have as many designers um, 
as developers, right? To kind of have this conversation with them of what exactly does a great app mean and and how do you have your designers and developers work together to make sure you're building the best thing? That is an awesome yeah. breakdown. And Carl, make sure you include a link to the Netflix movie uh, Good Burger in the show notes. <laughs> have you seen that? No, no I haven't. I, oh my God, you guys have to see that then. Anyway, go ahead, Carl. Yeah, I really liked your definition before of design when you called it human-based problem solving because it made me realize that, you know, in a lot of ways, I was not giving design its full credit of what it what it's about, Mm-mm. which kind of makes me think, why why do developers have such a hard time when they think about design? Yeah, well, I, I would. So again, I got to keep coming back to, and I hate to, to nitpick, the difference between a developer and a programmer and a coder and a production engineer. Because when you create, um, so I promise I will answer your question. <laughs> I need to do like a three-minute loop to come no, back. No, this, this is good stuff. Go, just go ahead. This so is great. Let's, let's think of something that's not as emotionally sensitive, but that has the exact same pattern. Let's think of clothing. So clothing like software is pretty much the, the, the most ubiquitous commodity on the planet, right? I mean, very few people walk around naked without going to jail, right? Everybody has clothing. And for the most part, we'll all maybe run in and buy our socks and underwear at Walmart and not really brag about it, you know, but we all have those, you know, we don't think of clothing so much as a commodity, although it is, um, it, clothing doesn't start at scale. Clothing starts as a creative expression. So you have, um, fashion and you have the people and they're on the, the, you know, they're doing the runways they're doing the couture, they're defining new directions of what styling is going to be. And then that tends to influence, right? I mean, somebody makes something magical and, and we come back to this word again and again and again about magic, right? Somebody makes something magical that nobody's seen before and is super cool. And then it starts influencing early adopters. And then those early adopters start kind of cashing it out. And it kind of starts doing the slow slide from brand new and magical to being like four years from now, it's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous, right? And it's a mm-hmm. commodity. So Clothing has this exact same line where, where you're going to make something couture that nobody will ever wear, right? I'm, I'm not going to be wearing a dead swan on my head, right, or anything like that. But it, it does this thing. It sparks the ideas. It gets the controversy. Something comes out that's a little bit more pret-a-porter. comes out on a high brand label. And for most of us, muggles, right, it, it's, not even, it's not even on our radar yet. But then patterns and trends start coming in. And then eventually everybody's wearing it. And then next year it's kind of pushed down and then eventually it's kind of the knockoff labels and then it kind of ends up at like a dress barn or Walmart, right? Or something like that. Same thing with software. When you think of say like the, the, uh, the data visualizations or the music visualizations that iTunes did like 12 years ago, 10 years ago, right? That was designed by somebody and, and specifically Andrew Bell, Robert Hodgins and, and, and other people that they would work on these data visualizations and they were coding from scratch that there is no component you could snap in. There's no template. There's no framework. You're literally purely creating with code something that nobody's seen before. But as soon as that happens, it kind of explodes out. Everybody loves it and everybody gives, you know, Apple in this case, their money. And then everybody starts reverse engineering it. So you you have engineers, coding engineers, coding programmers, and they think of themselves as programmers. I think of myself as a programmer. But you have people who create something from scratch, from, from uh, a priori. You create something that's never existed before. And then other people will see the coolest of that. And this is a totally different type of programming engineer who can come in and see something awesome and know how to reverse engineer it. 
And then you start adding scale to it. And then eventually you start getting the Telerik and the tools people coming in and they start turning it into a component. And then eventually that goes down to the assembly line concept of software, right? And then you're at that point, you're now a scale optimized, I don't want to say commodity, but you're a scale optimized good. And you tended to start off at an experience optimized good. So the types of programmers that focus on experience optimized software tend to create the original things and they create it. In, in a completely different way than scale-optimized or production-optimized software, uh, which runs the world. Don't get me wrong. I'm not diminishing it, right? Mm-hmm. The production engineering is what keeps the engine running, right? But production engineering is focusing on repeatability, reusability, you know, scale. And when it turns into that assembly line, at that point, is when people start caring about, are you a designer or developer? Because at that point, we're kind of sitting on an assembly line. You have the business people over here. You have the designers over here. You have interaction designers, interaction developers. You have you know, your, your front end, your middleware, your back end, you know, your database, your cloud specialists. That's the type of mindset that happens when you're already thinking of an assembly line. And assembly lines optimize for production you know, and for scale. But that's usually not where the coolest experiences start. And, and that's why we're very, very invested in startup culture, right, in, in these types of accelerators. And earlier than that, the schools themselves, where you have uh, teachers. And I think the web popularized that. The JavaScript absolutely popularized that. And uh, app stores uh, from 2008 on, this is the big shift we've gone in because 10 years ago, if you're in software, it cost a lot of money to make software, and you needed to sell it at a at a at a seven at seventy dollars, right? And if you're going to make software that you have to sell at seventy dollars a unit, that's a serious investment. But the web comes out, and all of a sudden, I only need to make ninety nine cents on what I'm going to write. Yeah, if but, that. Yeah, if that, right? Mm-hmm. And I only need two or three people, or or one person or two people, right? Making mm-hmm. a small experience. That only needs to sell. That's only that's only worth ninety nine cents, but a million times over. That's completely different than thinking of software that's worth fifty dollars or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, right? So that scale, it's it's the difference between building cathedrals and like just running a bazaar, right? R- running a swap meet, mm-hmm. and that shift has started to bring this ability of having small little teams of that aren't assembly line at all. It, it's very they're called T-shaped people, right? I mean, somebody who they kind of get design, but you're really good at code, and you're working with somebody who gets code, but they're really good with design, right? And those two people come together, they can make something small that has magic, and it just explodes out, right? And once that explodes out, the rest of the world will come in and start reverse engineering it, turning it into a commodity, and it just fuels the rest of the industry. But the web democratized development from it just being a production engineered focus to it being something that everybody can leverage. And it's that shift that, I, that I'm most passionate about because it's kind of, it's what Arduino did with hardware. We're getting to that point with software. And, and the pattern just arises again and again and again, right? Arduino was not about uh, making everybody an electrical engineer. It was the exact opposite. It was about democratizing to enable tinkering and hacking and hobbyists. So all the cool things you see with Arduino and Netduino and Galileo, right? All the things that you saw here, this pattern, it's not like all of a sudden people invented electrical engineering. It's that it gave the ability, gave the power of engineering to non-engineers. And we're at that point in 2014 with software where everybody is becoming a programmer, but not necessarily everybody's becoming a production engineer because that's two different levels. 
And when everybody becomes a programmer, we have to acknowledge that non-production engineer trained people are going to be approaching and thinking about computation in a fundamentally different way. And that's a lot of the conversations we're not having. And it's not a design conversation versus an engineer conversation. It's really a production engineering conversation versus an experimentalist engineering culture. Cool. So I, I keep thinking back to um, games and how, uh, you know, I had read something at one point. And one interesting thing you see with games is that the, the, men, like the main menu in a game, they're almost always different. Every single yeah. time they're different, <laughs> right? And then if you, if you look at a you know, a line of business application and you look at their navigation system, they're always the same. They're all the same. They're all using, let's call it menus or, you know, now it's tiles or, or things like that. Right. And, and I always kind of wondered why that was. And, and whenever, whenever a developer, when, or whenever a game developer designer is, is, is creating a game, they really don't have many pieces to start with. You know, they might have a game that they've created before and they might be able to reuse that code. But for the most part, they sort of a blank, have a blank slate. And I think that's part of what you're talking about, where they they have a little bit more creative freedom because they're already in that mode of being able to just create whatever they need to create. So, OK, well, I'm going to make a cool, you know, round menu whenever they right click um, or whenever they click on something or it's going to, you know, it's going to be, um, you know, a gun shooting bullets, you know, as as my menu system like they they have that freedom and it, it seems kind of trivial to do it in a game, but you never see it in an application. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, and that's exactly right on a game. That's like the most canonical example of a deeply immersive app. Mm-hmm. And so that's where uh, visceral design and reflective design uh, are the most prominent, right? Mm-hmm. Behavioral design for a game isn't about uh, let's make sure all the menus are consistent, right? Or nobody's going to know how to how to invert your y-axis, right? Which is just dumb when you think about it like that. Behavioral design is about is the game uh, fast, you know, twitch responsive? Is it lagging? Is my character falling behind, right? Um, so, so this kind of uh, th- this aspect of all these menu systems have to be consistent. When you move up the immersive. You know, when you move along the axis to the immersive, that becomes not true, right? Video games have completely different menu systems because that's not the focus of a video game. You're not in a video game. Um, a video game is not a utility transaction. It's an immersive experience, right? Mm-hmm. But as you go toward the utility side, as you move more toward the McDonald's side, then all of a sudden it does make sense for there to be a consistency in the OS, right? And that's kind of where a lot yep. of the design language w- was, was, because uh, I don't have to want to relearn a menu system, checking my, you know, checking my bank balance from checking my credit card balance, right? I, I don't want to have to do that. Right. Um, so absolutely, as your app is more of a utility, it does better, it is better design to think of things such as consistency, right? Think of, think of things such as winning as one, not try and reinvent paradigms just to be different, right? If, if you truly are building a, a utility style app, then it does, then do embrace all of these good guidelines. But as your app is trying to differentiate for whatever reasons and move upstream to be an experience, of course, good design will allow you freedom to express your brand or respect or, or uh, express your unique voice. Okay. So I, I'm going to consider myself a production engineer based on what I heard. So <laughs> is it, is it possible for me to learn, um, you know, to, to get out of that mindset or, or is it going to be a lot easier for, for people like you, where you're, you're starting from, from more of the design side to, to sort of take over what I do? I mean, is there any hope for me? 
<laughs> well, I, I, absolutely. I, uh, again, I think um, I, I don't I don't support the kind of false dichotomy that you're either a developer or you're a designer, right? And I think um, what I'm trying to voice is we might have our day jobs be production engineers, um, but when you go home, you still think of yourself as a hacker, right? Ho- hopefully, hopefully you do, right? Very few people got into software to go work for a company and work eight hours a day and punch the clock and then go home and not touch software again, right? I mean, yeah. most, of, most of us got into computers because we're creative, because we love creating things and hacking things and, and figuring out things, right? And I think the problem is that a lot of us have lost touch with that. So I, I don't think anybody is a production engineer. I think most people do that as a living, but when they go home, they're still creative and they're creative with code, right? And and that's the focus. If you're coming at it from the code side um, or if you're coming at it from the other side, it's kind of like most of us got into this industry to express ourselves with code, right? And some of us do it more visually like I do. Uh, other people do it through the algorithms and the functions. And But it is that exact same feeling. You know, when I've, I've wrestled with serious algorithms and when I finally solve them, right, I mean, that feeling I get is that exact same feeling I get as when I'm pushing pixels in Photoshop, right? And it finally just kind of nails it, right? It, it, is, it is an expression of creativity. So, um, uh, so my best advice to you would probably be not so much that you need to learn something different, is that kind of realize why you got into software to begin with. It's kind of when we were talking with Herb Sutter last year on this, um, we were showing him some of this stuff, and so on his keynote, he wrote a game in this one C++ library called uh, called Cinder, and he said um, he hadn't written written a game in 20 years, and so he used 120 lines of code, and he made like Pac-Man, and he said he had so much fun doing it, and it was great seeing somebody as well-respected as Herb, right? I mean, global ISO chair, all this types of stuff, and it's like he hadn't taken time to write a game in 20 years, and he had... It's like so much fun. Of, that's right. This is what I got into this to begin with, right? It's that type of spark that I think everybody has. And it doesn't matter how good you can draw or push pixels. It's that are, are you being, are you playing with technology as, as the medium of the day, right? Are you playing with Galileo? Are you playing Internet of Things? Are you exploring Azure? Are you doing all these things? Are you having fun and following your passion and not just thinking? Because I think it gets kind of cynical, right? Uh, I'm an assembly line. I'm a production engineer. I want to build an app and it's going to get shipped out to the market. And we're all done with the day. I, I don't think that inspires anybody. I, I think I, we just need more inspiration right now. So maybe there's some hope for me. I think so. Okay, good. Yeah. Now, I think of myself as a developer who, who's, who's starting to understand design, at least on, on some levels. But, you know, when I put myself as an app developer who's, who's starting to make a few things click, when, when should I turn to somebody who's an actual designer, even if I have something that starts fairly utilitarian and, you know, I, I want it to just pop a bit more or do some more stuff. When, when, sh- when should I realize that, you know, may- maybe it's it's a utility enough or maybe it needs us something extra? How do I determine when to turn to somebody else with those skill sets? Um, yeah, so I think if you've already built something and you're kind of, you know, it's utility. Well, first off, I think there's there's enough decent design principles that are accessible to everybody. It's almost like when you say engineering, like when you say design isn't an engineering um, concept, we tend to mean like American engineering. But if I say German engineering, oh, okay, I know what you mean there. That That's always nice looking too, right? So why is it that we agree German engineering 
means design is included, but American engineering doesn't mean design is included. Because right? of the cars. <laughs> because <of that. laughs> well, yeah. so so on something like that, there are there's enough great books because you're just talking about uh, the, the the aesthetics of your app. There are enough good books out there and tutorials that that I suggest um, everybody does good to look it through, right? I mean, are is are things in a grid, right? Are your mm. color matching? Are there there's enough templates out there for utility software that there shouldn't be a reason in 2014 for somebody to write ugly software, right? I, yeah. I, I really don't think so. Um, but, uh, but as your app is interacting with more humans, if you really want it to be successful, of course, bring in somebody who, who is passionate about, about the aesthetics to help and kind of tweak that up. Th- that's fine. That counts as design. It's not the type of design I, mm-hmm. I personally focus on the broad design. It's mm-hmm. kind of more the, the visual side of design. Um, and, and that's always good, but I would encourage everybody to everybody who's a developer to to find these one or two books, these blog sites, and be fluent in it. We, we've seen these shift when it comes to testing. Now, here's something that's happening very explicit in Microsoft with testing, right? I mean, uh, it used to be you test it over here, you throw it over the fence. I mean, you build it over here, and then there's testers that come in, and they take it, and they test it for you, and they throw it back. Mm-hmm. We've seen recently in Microsoft culture, and, and I believe globally, this kind of move toward, yeah, we're not going to be doing that pattern anymore. Every developer should be testing aware, Right, and we're seeing the shift now, where developers are needing to become more aware of testing as a requirement of their discipline, of their profession. I believe the exact same shift should be happening with design. Now, an expert tester—that—that's—that's that's, they have a tremendous amount of skills, right? But every developer uh, does better by becoming more testing aware, right? Thinking of their code that way. In the same way, every developer would do better by learning the basic principles of visual design, which honestly isn't very hard. I mean, not the basic principles, right? So, um, and then it's up to you, but if you have friends that want to do it for free, (laughs) if you have money to do it for somebody else or, or, or something or something like that. But on the global scale, all these kids being born now, all these kids that are digital, all these kids coming out of school, design is, isn't a fixed thing. People have expectations of software now, right? And with social media, with consumer apps being so different, these 19, 20-year-old kids that we do, that will mentor or that come to do interning, they are just raised with higher quality software. So even though they don't think of themselves as designers, they're starting to intuitively repeat out what, they've, what they're seeing on their culture. So at a certain point, you might be a developer past a certain age, and we grew up with painfully ugly software. So we're kind of cool making painfully ugly software. Mm-hmm. And but, we actually have an attention span. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, but I think that's, that's something that's, uh, I think that's a trend that's happening, and and I encourage everybody to to uh, spend some time learning about design, just as they would testing. Um, but but the newer developers, it's less of a message I have to share to them because they they don't think their software is done until it's at least as polished as the type of software they're used to, mm-hmm. and and that's something I don't think we give a lot of voice to. But it's it's a big trend that's happening among the younger kids. No, I'm, I totally see that, even with my uh, nine year old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I mean, he just has totally different expectations. He's like, dad, that doesn't look good, you know, or that's boring or I don't want to use that. You know, I'm just yeah. not, I'm just not going to use it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, definitely. Alan Kay said, uh, when they asked him to define what technology is, um, Alan Kay said, technology is anything invented after you were born because <laughs> the, like design technology is one of these, um, that's true. It, it's very, it's variable, right? I mean, my, mm-hmm. my daughter was born 
uh, and she'll go, she'd go up and touch a screen. And if the screen didn't react, the screen was broken. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and my son is now coming of age as a four year old will where he'll walk into the room and the connect recognizes him, you know, or recognizes me and says, hi, Rick. He sees this interaction already and he sees me gesture to the computer and it's reading my body or I give a voice command. And so for him, all these things that for a lot of us have basically been science fiction until now, for him, it's ubiquitous. It's as, it's as non-technology as the carpet and wallpaper. It's his reality right now. So how is he going to be thinking about software when he is born into a world where he's born with complacency that we have soft AI doing voice and vision recognition real time, right? And having conversations. He hears me talking to Cortana all the time, you know? Well, I shouldn't say all the time. That just makes me sound <laughs> in the morning, right? Cortana, uh, why won't yeah. you answer me? <laughs> exactly. So, you have so a relationship with her. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so you mentioned ubiquity and that was kind of the next thing I was going to ask because I know that, uh, I know you've mentioned that before. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about ubiquity? Uh, yeah, again, this comes in where I think this future that we're making and it's, it's everybody. And I much, I prefer the phrase creative because that doesn't make you force. Am I a developer or am I a designer? Right. I mean, if you're, if you're creative focused or if you're production focused, I think would, would be the better shift. But all mm-hmm. of us digital creatives, uh, no matter where we are on the stack, I, I think we're all rushing quickly toward this ubiquitous uh, paradigm that all of the big five, right? I mean, that that Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, uh, Facebook, um, and whoever the fifth one is. I'm sorry. I'm trying to play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amazon. Um, we're seeing these big shifts in patterns. And, and even with Microsoft this year, right, we're saying we're, we're uh, mobile first, cloud first, right? It, yes, we do have two firsts. Um, yeah, I was <laughs> thinking about that today, you know, d- draw the first one on the board, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and Satya, Satya says that too, right? I mean, he, he yeah. laughs and makes a joke, right? Yes, we do have two firsts. Um, but what that means, uh, I think we're talking a lot on the mobile focus, but most of ubiquitous computing, what's happening very, very quickly, uh, is two main paradigms. And one of them is kind of moving these computer desktop paradigm up into a smart space, a, a, a computationally sensitive environment. I think Xbox One is already the precursor of something like that. That's turning my living room into a computational space. Mm-hmm. It sees me, I see it, I interact with it in various inputs. You know, it interacts with me in various outputs. It's getting more predictive, it's getting soft AI. So my my personally, my workspace is like that as well. Of course, we're in software, but I come in, I have a Connect, right? I have an Oculus. I input through a tablet, through pen, through mouse. I output through stereoscopic, through augmented. And these are kind of these uh, smart spaces that we're creating for, for people who, who interact with technology that way. But we also have the mobile and cloud side that around my person, we are creating a cloud vapor, right, or this data shadow that will follow me and will be aware and will be cloud-powered. And when we say mobile, it doesn't just mean phone. That's only hand scale, right? You have to think skin scale with wearables, what's on my wrist, what's on my skin, what's in my pocket. Yes, hand scale with my phone, arm scale with my tablets, right, as we move up to glasses uh, and hopefully eventually contacts, right, computational or LED contacts, right? It, as we move on this ubiquitous computing, the mobile cloud side of it, is kind of your data shadow. So how your how your data shadow that follows the person of you 
seamlessly handshakes and shares identity and data and preferences, right? And computation as we plug in and plug out or walk in and walk out of these smart spaces. That's to me when I talk about ubiquitous computing and the design challenges around ubiquitous computing is all of us getting together and make sure we're asking the right questions around this because that's where technology is heading. We're having a cloud first, mobile first, which is a nice 2014 way of saying the mobile side of ubiquitous computing. Ubiquitous computing also has the stationary side and how the mobile side and the stationary side passively and seamlessly handshake on and handshake off and how all that is synced properly. Um, that's, that's, ubiquitous computing that writ large. That's that's what everybody's rushing toward, right? Who will own that ecosystem? How many ecosystems will there be? Will the web exist as kind of like a, a, a lateral cut across these ecosystems? So that's the one side of it. Wrapping it all up, I would say the design implication of that is I believe more and more apps will continue to be cannibalized and swallowed up by the intelligent mesh if you're a utilities app. Why would I mm -hmm. ever need to buy and install and click on a weather app just to see what the weather is when I'm already, uh, I want Cortana to say this to me because I ask Cortana now. I wake up in the morning so I say, hey, what's the weather like? And I just push the button, I ask her, and she tells me while I'm picking out my clothes. I'm hoping Cortana, this intelligent mesh, right, with predictive algorithms, uh, I, I'm hoping pretty soon that when she wakes me up, and we talk about what I have planned on the day, she knows it's something I, you know, she just tells me, right? And that might sound like science fiction, but it's really not. No, it's, it's, really, not, it's really that, not, we're at all. not that far. It's not that yeah. far away. So, so on, when, the, when the intelligent mesh cannibalizes the vast majority of utilities apps, developers are going to have a very, very, very hard time because every technology tends to consume more jobs than it creates, right? And if we're moving to a services world, I, I think we lived through 10, 10 years where you kind of could be a jack of all trades, but I honestly believe as developers, you're going to start optimizing either to be a headless services creator and supporter to make apps that to, to empower the intelligent mesh for all the utility stuff that nobody wants to click in anyways, or you're going to have to be design focused because the things that people actually want to launch are customized immersive experiences because the mesh will be smart enough to, to get rid of everything else for us. So um, I, I believe this kind of clashing between design and development as we move toward ubiquitous computing is going to create this forcing function for developers. I think, especially in America, especially the past 10 years, we've gotten kind of complacent. And I see that just going away because I see most utility apps getting consumed by the intelligent mesh. And at that point, what type of apps are you going to be creating anymore? Mm -hmm. Speaking of this intelligent mesh, Jason was telling me last week that uh, you were playing around with a bunch of devices. How does the Internet of Things kind of fit into this, and how do you see that? Yeah, um, and again, this is a, as a creative technologist, I should say, so not necessarily designer versus developer. But the, the Internet of Things, I, I, I love when people describe it as kind of giving the Internet a nervous system, right? And, and uh, you hear the stories as... Uh, once once eyes came on the scene uh, of of the fossil record, right? I mean, once mm -hmm. eyes came on the scene, there's this massive diversity of 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 animals, you know, that 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 appeared. Um, and I think the the connect and the Internet of Things and giving sensors, we're giving a nervous system to the internet to our software. We're all of a sudden we're giving eyeballs and muscles, right, and skin, and 
writ large, again, it's it's very, very powerful. We've been making apps that have been very finite. Almost our apps are nouns, right? And the, as pretty as they might be, they've kind of been deaf and dumb and, and blind. And so I see the Internet of Things kind of fulfilling this promise of what apps can actually do because our apps can now plug in. They can be collaborative. They can see us and respond back to us. They can follow us and be predictable, right? And and we can employ these predictive uh, models for our own behavior. So when we've had technology up until the Internet of Things, it's tended to be very finite, very noun. I click it, it does, you know, it, it's almost like a force genie in a box, right? Mm-hmm. And now as we bring in sensors and we're giving the Internet a nervous system, it gets to kind of hit this level of diversity that things are going to start getting very, very weird, very, very, very fast. Um, they already are, and we're kind of falling into the state of present shock all the time. And we keep kind of rewriting history, not realizing how quickly things are getting weird, right? Multi-touch was just 2008, right? Now we see um, t- last month um, I'm mapping my brain patterns with, a mem- with an emotive while I have an Oculus 2 HD <laughs> exploring virtual reality, right? <laughs> that wasn't a tweet I was expecting to send out in 2014 where it's like, <laughs> it's like I'm exploring virtual reality and the effects on my brain, right? So. Wow. So things are things are going very very quickly, and I, I just I love that all the doors are getting blown out, yep. and so many of the young developers now, like finishing school or or starting to go into school, they're coming in with this broadness, and they don't see a split between apps and Internet of Things. To them, it's 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 this mesh of technology, right? And it's there and it's open to them, and um and again, it's kind of keeping that shift open for everybody. Uh, that that I'm passionate about, but but I see them absolutely as being the same thing. It's like the app is the brain, the Internet of Things is your hands and the rest of your body, and what technology is is that full person that will be able to interact with you. Cool, very inspiring, very good stuff. Uh, so let's move on to the Azure pick of the week. So I actually have two this week. So one is sort of news, but it's uh, related to Azure, so I wanted to put it in here. Uh, there was the release of the MS Virtual Machine Converter 3.0 that came out today. So what this lets you do is is convert between various versions of um, uh, virtual machine disks. So you can do things like convert from uh, VMware to Azure, for example. So a very useful utility if you know if you're trying to to migrate up to Azure, or if you're trying to migrate over to Hyper V, or between Hyper V and Azure, um, those types of scenarios. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And then also um, I wanted to include I have a I have a pick of the week from. 2012. <laughs> it's uh, called Azure Fluent Management, and the re- the way that I uh, stumbled upon this, I was I was working on something on on GitHub, uh, some some code out there for for interacting with Azure. It was actually for doing uh, uh, virtual machine pooling. Nothing too exciting, but I was trying to use the the .NET uh, SDK for Azure. And for those that aren't aware. Uh, Azure, it's kind of the the way that you automate Azure is kind of interesting because it's it's essentially a, a surface area of REST APIs, and then there are different layers layered on top of that. So there's a .NET SDK, and then there's a PowerShell layered on top of that, so that you can sort of pick what what level you want to be at. If you just want to, you know, use some PowerShell commands, or or even there's a tool for like Windows and Lin or for uh, Mac and and Linux. If you want to use those command line tools, it's ultimately using an SDK or a REST API to, to make those calls. And then the portal is essentially doing the same thing. So I was using the .NET SDK and you can tell that it's built to be part of these layers. And it's um, it's actually, very, you know, it's it's relatively difficult to use because 
you sort of have to guess at what the parameters are. And if you forget something, it'll say, hey, you forgot this. You put it in. It goes, well, if you give me that, then you can't give me this other parameter. It's really, really difficult to use. So I started thinking about it. It's like, hey, we should layer on a, a fluent interface on top of this. And sure enough, I found somebody who did this a couple of years ago. And I think theirs is based on the REST API. So I'm actually thinking about uh, coming up with a, a sort of a modern version of this and just putting it on a GitHub, maybe some extension methods for the existing SDK. But anyway, we're going to include a link to this in the show notes. So you can you can already use there's a you know, there's a version of this out there today uh, that somebody else came up with. that is actually much, much easier to use than the .NET SDK directly. Um, so I recommend taking a look at that. They deserve a lot of credit for that. And Carl, what is our app of the week? Our app of the week this week is based upon our former guest, Jeff Weber. Uh, when he was on last, he was talking about uh, game development. And uh, he has a, a sequel to the game he was talking about. It's called Crashlander Ski Jump Crash. And what's really cool about this one is um, the, the controls have always been, you know, something that you need to master with this. But he makes failing fun. Uh, the way that you crash on the game just kind of adds a little bit extra where it, you may not have mastered this piece yet, but you still enjoyed failing. Yeah, I like so, this. The, the one review talks about ragdoll physics. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. OK, cool. Yeah. Jeff is uh, he's a good friend of the show. Um, I used to work with him and uh, yeah, he he came on. I don't that was a pretty early episode. And, and talked about what it took to make a game like this. And he shared a whole bunch of stats with us, which was really, really great. So I'll have to, I'll have to check that out because I know the previous version was uh, originally written for um, Windows Phone 7. So this is great to yep. see. He, ta- yeah, he, he basically talked about this when he was on the show. Yep, and he wrote it in Unity, and there's yep. also an iOS version, and he said Android is on its way. Okay, that's pretty cool. Okay, uh, so I am Jason. You can find me at twitter.com slash ytechie. Or at ytechie.com. And actually, one thing I think we forgot to do last week, Carl, with Mads, was we got this game. Oh, yes, we yeah, forgot that. Yeah, Rick, are you up for, for, a, for a game here? You, I didn't <laughs> sure. tell you about this ahead of time. So you have to pick a number between one and four. Okay, three. Three? Okay. Would you rather live in a world where nobody cleans up after their dog or where everybody, including you, has to do it barehanded? um i would have to say um i'd have to say the second one because i don't have a dog right now (laughs) well you'd have to clean up well that's a that's a good point because i guess they you know they would have to clean it up after their own dog oh man that's too easy if i was assigned a dog then i would say what (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think they rotate there's just a list of dogs and they rotate through okay carl pick a number between one and four one one would you rather get up one morning to open your dresser to see a hundred black widow spiders run out? That's pretty terrifying. <laughs> or to see 10 large rats run out and hide under the furniture behind the drapes and everywhere else. This one's easy. What would you pick? Yeah, I I'm less of a spider person, so I would rather see the rats. Yeah, I'm 10. This, this is just kind of silly. I mean, a hundred spiders versus 10 rats. That's kind of a no brainer. So you, you got it. You got an easy one there. So, uh, Rick, where can people find you if they want more information? Uh, Twitter, uh, Rick Barraza, B-A-R-R-A-Z-A. Be the the best way to go. Okay. And Carl? Yep. You can find me at WPDoveGuy.com or Twitter.com slash Carl Schweitzer. Okay. And then for the show, make sure that you uh, send your feedback to feedback at msdevshow.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. 
And then also go to MS Dev Show and definitely check out the new design. Uh, leave us some comments. And that's where we have all the show notes about everything that we talked about. And then make sure that you go out to iTunes, Stitcher, all those good places and uh, leave us a review. And Rick, it was so much fun talking to you. You really you've inspired me and sort of opened my eyes to a world that uh, I, I, I knew existed, but it's a lot bigger than I thought it was. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me.